welcome to the Modern Maker podcast for Thursday, June 20th, 2019, otherwise known as Ice Cream Soda Day, which I'm not 100% sure on what ice cream soda is, but I like ice cream and I like soda and I like days. So three, three <laughs> Is it like a root beer be float? That's what I'm guessing. It's got to be yeah. root beer floats, but it's funny that it's like expanding beyond that, even though root beer float probably makes up 98% of what ice cream sodas are. I've had a Coke yeah. float. But the weird thing is I feel like ice cream sodas is something that old people would say. Yeah. No like, one under the age of like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, maybe even 50 I was gonna say is like 90. saying ice cream sodas anymore. Like that's something your grandparents would say. Yeah. It's like from the soda jerk times or something. Yeah, exactly. You can get one Go down to nickel. the drugstore. Yeah. I think a lot of old school desserts and candies are frankly just kind of trash. And it was just because people really wanted sugar. And there wasn't a lot of options. They'll take it where they can get it. Yeah. Yeah, I've had... Have you guys ever had a Necco wafer? Not good. Garbage. Terrible. It's like Pepto-Bismol based... Or no, like a a Tums or something. That's a hot take. That's a hot take. take. There you go. That's what people listen to the Modern Maker podcast for. Anyway, let's listen. Let's go to a sponsor real quick. This episode is brought to you by Necco wafers. (laughs) Even though we just (laughs) trashed them right here at the top of the episode. Yeah. All right. What are you guys working on? Mike, how's your concrete testing going? Man, I am happy to, what do I say? Report? I'm happy to announce it worked well, and I've stumbled upon a couple of discoveries that I'm incredibly excited about. So for one, I've been testing the ratio of the three main ingredients that go into concrete. Those ingredients are sand, gravel, like some sort of aggregate, and then cement, like Portland cement. And I've been testing those three ingredients with certain ones at higher ratios than others. And I found the perfect ratio that gives me a good, strong, consistent finish. Mm. And then from there, I've tested adding other ingredients. So switching up the aggregate, instead of using water, using a liquid like acrylic fortifier so that it's got no water, which means it also doesn't really shrink any. So that should add more strength and all kinds of stuff. I've just been making form after after form after form and then just mixing different types of concrete in it and I'm done doing all my tests I've sort of found the best easy result with super common material and then I then I made a second result that's a little bit stronger but uses material that's a little bit tougher to get so it's sort of splitting the gap where the where the where the road diverges between mm-hmm. easy and performance. I got a question. I don't know if you guys know this. So if you were to mix just cement and water, what would you end up with? Something that was like hard, but just would be brittle kind of? Like exactly, it would just break yeah. real easily? Yep. It wouldn't have the same tensile or compression strength. But a lot of times when people are making really small molds of things, mm-hmm. that's what they have to do just because it's not big enough right. for to like, like the aggregate hide the to aggregate. Even fit in. Okay. Yeah, if, yeah. If, if you wanted to do some really intricate kind of molding, you could do some cool stuff with just that. Or you could use what's called precision grout, which is just the Portland cement and a little bit of sand. And that's great for when you're trying to fill in like a really small crack in something. Um, and you yeah. want to make something that also has a minimal amount of shrinkage. Yeah, but if you were doing something like, say you had a silicone mold of like a bust of Julius Caesar's face, yeah, you would still want to add some sort of really fine aggregate. I don't know why that's what I went with. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> but Just thinking of like statues that might exist. Mm-hmm. Topical. Yeah. <laughs> if you had a really... Wait, you guys don't... That's not I do on have your guys' list? Yeah, no, no. I have one in my uh, bathroom. Damn it. Always taking my best ideas. 
Yeah. But but my big discovery that I'm excited about sharing is using river pebbles, pea gravel, if you will, mm-hmm. instead of any kind of white aggregate. So like I mentioned, my whole goal was making white concrete. You know, I found white Portland cement, I found white sand, and I found white aquarium rocks. Mm-hmm. But the aquarium rocks were expensive, and I knew I was going to do a bunch of tests. So instead of using that every time, while I was trying to figure out what ratio of ingredients gave me the best strength results... I was just using cheap pea gravel that would you would use in like a flower bed or in a walkway. So they're like tan rocks yeah. mixed with the white cement and the white sand. And everybody said it looked like some sort of wafers. Mm. I don't remember like exactly what they called. Yeah, or like some kind of peanut brittle or something like that. But okay. I guess not peanut but r- brittle. But regardless, it looks really, really cool because you've got this white concrete. And then whenever I was doing all my tests, I was, you know, testing them until they broke to figure out how strong they were and so everywhere these concrete slabs broke it looked like a live edge slab of some sort of like peanut brittle or like vanilla wafer brittle something like that i don't know what you would call it yes man we are less than five minutes into this episode and we've already talked about three different kinds of wafers yes (laughs) that's what i'm here for man all wafer talk all the time yeah i saw the samples it looks great the right the thing I would be interested in testing too would be like a crushed marble or a crushed light colored limestone yeah. where you're getting away from the more ellipsoid type shapes of aggregate and are, are have more sort of triangulated and jagged Shards. shapes. Yeah, because that's what you find in quickrete bags. Right. I did a couple of tests with quickretes just as it gets a better like grip. a control test. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The, the other thing that I think would be interesting is if you went with a, a limestone – sandstone or marble those are softer stones so that if you did grind it down the top to expose the aggregate it would be easier to to, to grind through those stones where when you have like a, a hard river stone uh sometimes if you're if you're not grinding carefully those those little smooth rocks can pop right out mm. yeah that's that's actually a really great idea i've been thinking i would like to try a bunch of different things as aggregate like see what happens when i try and use like crushed glass what happens when I use crushed marble, like you mentioned, mm. and then just basically mix a bunch of different types of aggregate and see what happens. So is round one, I'll call it, of experimenting finished, like in terms of what you're going to do for this video? Yep. So now I'm just editing the content. I don't know if it'll be out by Thursday. The day that we're recording today? is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's out today. <laughs> Monday that we're recording, right. I am editing. So hopefully by Thursday, the day the listeners are listening, I'll have the video done. If not, it'll be, you know, sooner than later. Yes. But gotcha. either way, all that to say, exposing all these live edges of concrete really makes me want to do some sort of river table. As much as uh as much as I might get criticized for everything we've said on this podcast. Hey, I've done I definitely several do since it. criticizing. Yeah, that's true. As long as you're and doing a new take on it. That's what I was about to say. Everybody's got to put their take on a river table, and I don't think anybody has done a good concrete river table. And if they have, I haven't seen it yet. So unless it involved Legos, unless it involved Legos, exactly. Or Legos, but what (laughs) Lego? What are you guys working on? I'm excited to hear. Ben, I'm actually working on a concrete chair, so I need more. I ended up with so much patio space. There's almost like a thousand square feet of deck and patio at the container house. Mm-hmm. So there's been quite a few uh, outdoor furniture projects that have uh, I've needed to do to kind of fill it in and make yeah. it all inhabitable. It's also very windy out there, so 
I thought a, a couple concrete chairs would be a good idea. And this is kind of just the first step in a, a series of projects that I'm thinking about. I really want to do heated concrete furniture in the future for outdoor stuff. I love the idea that because it does actually get quite cold out here in the desert. Um, I actually think it's your it's too cold almost as often as it is too hot out here. So I really like the idea of of installing some sort of electrical heating elements into the concrete, and then uh, so you can do some like low voltage yeah. warmth to it. Because then it's like you know you're sitting outside even. Even if it's, you know, like 55 degrees, if the surface you're sitting on is nice and warm and that's a good amount of contact with you, like that's that's outstanding. Yeah. Just but, have your hands under your butt while you're sitting on something warm. Yeah. But the first thing I want to do is actually develop some some mold ideas for the chairs and kind of work out the shapes and geometry. Because right now the electrical heating elements that I've been looking at are, are a bit pricey. So I kind of want to work through some some dumb ones first before adding the kind of smarter technology to it. That's cool. What are these heating elements? Like, what are they? Are they some sort of, is it like what, uh, like a heating blanket would use? A little bit different. The, the They're they're used to heat countertops, right? Okay. Oh, cool. So apparently there's some people in the world that find that leaning on a cold countertop is just Life's just too hard. <laughs> Maybe it's for like cooking or something. Like if you're doing something with dough nope, and there's nope. like a right temperature. Because it doesn't get nope. that doesn't get that warm. <laughs> it's just to take the chill off. Like you're okay. gonna put your elbows down it or something. Just then, like you know what? It's a little bit too cold. I need a I heater just, in here. I quit. This is too hard. <laughs> just roughing it. Right. So, but they're like three hundred bucks for a twelve inch by forty inch mat. Which can heat up wow. quite a bit and you just kind of peel and stick it to the underside of the surface. And then from there, it's just, you know, managing the the wires. And, you know, there's always those big kind of electrical boxes that are connected to the wires too, which are just always the most unsightly, annoying things to deal with. So yeah. working on that, the still got a lot of the 3D print projects going because I'm doing another polycarbonate cabinet. And oh, awesome. And this one, I'm 3D printing uh, the connections for the pieces. So it won't be sort of wood. It'll be 3D printed. So, And then other than that, I had a weekend of experimenting with carbon fiber. So my buddy uh, Cameron Day from Cameron Day Designs, uh, he works for the golf club manufacturer Cobra. And he's one of their design engineers. So he does a lot of their uh, industrial design from everything from like 3D printing, stainless steel putter heads to working with carbon fiber to to make the shafts for the golf clubs and he brought over about a hundred carbon fiber shafts that were all graphic mistakes from their sort of manufacturing runs Ooh. so they're about 48 inches long they taper from 5 eighths to about 3 eighths in diameter from end to end incredibly strong but very lightweight so mm. he's like hey i got a whole ton of these like <laughs> if you got any project ideas from them so we were kind of experimenting with them seeing how we cut them they are just stupid strong and just weigh nothing it's it's kind of bizarre so we're trying to figure out i mean obviously there's some you could you could use them for the legs of things and stuff like that but we're trying to think of a way to really take advantage of the lightweightness so at first we thought okay we could make like the world's lightest table using polycarbonate and then make some sort of structure with 3D printed joints for these tubes. So we might do something like that, but we're really trying to figure out something that maybe like a giant kite or something that actually really takes advantage of the weight 
to make something that kind of either, you know, with like some Tyvek that kind of can fly in the air. Yeah. So one of the ideas that we're kind of throwing around is it's super windy at the container house property or it gets windy often. And we're thinking if we make some sort of box kite with a carbon fiber frame and use Tyvek kind of glued and sewed around it to, to kind of make a, you know, make it lightweight, but uh, airborne. And then putting a bunch of solar powered LEDs inside the, the kind of like kite, we could make this like really crazy, like glowing flying UFO thing that would really piss off the light pollution neighbors. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, that's literally what I was thinking as you're saying this. Your neighbors already think you're ruining. Well, it's not the neighbors, it's <laughs> people everything. on Instagram. Is it though? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's great. At least that's, that's, that's better. Yeah. And but it would be kind of cool because at night you wouldn't really see if if we painted the the pole that kind of it tethers to, yeah, like a like a dark gray or you know real matte color that all you would see is this kind of like flying you know, <laughs> and and like if you did the solar powered LED lights, it's not that bright. You're talking no, yeah, you're talking really minimal amount of light. It would just be enough to kind of glow like a little moon or something. I don't even know where to go with that. That's like the weirdest <laughs> idea. <laughs> That's like the weirdest project idea anyone's come up with on this show. I don't know where you take that. Would it be would it be up all the time or would you take it up and down? Well, it depends. When a tragedy happens, you put it at half, half the height. Oh, uh, okay. half mass UFO. <laughs> Couple. Of- no, I don't know. Like it might just be that the idea that there's some sort of like moving lights. Yeah. That are that are kind of patio lanterns. And again, they aren't going to be producing a lot of lights because it'd be similar to those you know like those uh solar powered lights you get at home depot they're five dollars each and you just like mm-hmm. stick them right in the ground i would yeah. basically take the components out of one of those so one of oh, those okay. is is not very bright at all no and if it was inside tyvek it would just give off a, just a little bit of a soft glow i don't know i don't know where it's going either but it's it's a way to use the lightness of the material for something mm-hmm. and then from there can figure out sort of future purposes. You know, it's, it's kind of like going to the moon. You don't really got a reason to do it, but hey, maybe we'll come out with a microwave when we're done. Got to beat right. those rooskies. Yeah. That's cool though, because golf club or golf club handles the shafts, if you will, they've got a very distinct shape to them, you know? And so I think it'll be interesting if you're able to incorporate them into some furniture projects or some outdoor projects for the container house. I would like to see them incorporated to where they sort of blend in as one of the other materials to where you can utilize the tensile strength that they have without it being like completely obvious that it's made up of golf golf clubs. That would be really neat. Speaking of uh, weird ideas, to go back to your concrete chair ideas, tell me how dumb this is or impossible, but I was thinking, you know how like people make handprints or whatever. So like, what if you made a chair where it was your body print? So like you fit perfectly into it. And then mm. I started thinking, okay, that'd be obviously very weird. But what if there was a way to do it where it kind of like you set something in between it that dispersed your weight a little bit. So it wasn't like a specific body print, but it's still kind of like molded to the general shape of somebody roughly your size. Would there be like any way to do something like that? I've thought about that a bit, right? The people have done the chair with like the naked butt print in them, mm-hmm. which is... You know, it's sort of sort of clever and cheeky, pun intended. Yeah, yeah, but it gives you a dirty crack. Well, not so much, <laughs> not so much that it actually isn't make a comfortable chair because when you make something that's a perfect fit, the minute you add an eighth inch of denim and and clothing, 
in between oh. it, it no longer fits at all. So the the kind of the way to actually do it to improve the ergonomics would be kind of to do like a mini side to side kind of snow angel shimmy. Okay, yeah. Where you kind of move shake a little bit. Right. Also, a cast for like a broken arm or leg fits you perfectly, but is not comfortable to have on, right? Like so something that fits perfectly and holds you static isn't more comfortable than something that allows you to to a little bit of move but supports your back evenly. So, so do you think if you wrapped your naked body in cardboard and then sat into the concrete, <laughs> it would give you that? It, well, it would give you that like eighth inch buffer in every direction, you know, or maybe some sort of very bendy plywood. Yeah, you could basically it. you could mummy yourself and then set into Mummify. the wet concrete. Right. I think the actual thing, if it, like comfort doesn't have to be the point of everything, and comfort's different for everybody. But if you were to do it, you'd want to take something that was a semi-firm substance. And you'd want to put it in that, uh, apply it to the geometry you were thinking about, and then seeing where you're indenting the farthest. And then that mm-hmm. means where you're putting too much weight onto it, and then change the geometry until all the sort of impressions were more consistent and even. Yeah. So I think that would be the, the way to kind of utilize it. That being said, I think you could probably put something down like kind of like a yoga mat would might work well. So you have a little bit of buffer and then sitting on top of it and kind of moving. The question yeah. is, though, you know... I, I th- still think it'd be something you'd do with more of like a spray foam or some sort of silicone rather than into the wet concrete itself because you'd have to wait for it to, to cure enough. Yeah. And also just the, the movement around would also could make that you wouldn't be able to hold perfectly still. And so the little vibrations and movements could kind of keep the concrete from curing perfectly around those sort of surface areas. Which you got to get a surface cadaver. Could, right. <laughs> Ooh, well, I figured it out, man. You paper mache your body. Yeah. So you get into a sitting position and then paper mache your lower half. So then that can be a part of the form. It's like integral to what the I form. do every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> paper mache that body. You got any tips for making <laughs> paper, paper mache life molds? <laughs> It'll just be like a chair that perfectly spoons you, but right. not yeah. laying down. I like it. It'd make a good video at least. Realistically, though, I think that could lead to a decent I- idea, the idea of paper macheing to create a form, because I feel like that's maybe an underutilized medium in our world, because it's Would pretty it be versatile. You can make, I don't know what happens when you saturate it. I'm sure you could waterproof it somehow, but, it, but paper mache is like surprisingly strong for no, the I, thickness of it. I think my, my use of paper mache came and went in about sixth grade. I think like we got a balloon and paper mache over it and then popped the balloon and made like a pig on it or something. Word. It's about where it ended. Same, I don't, about, about the same for me. Yeah. But I <laughs> remember to, being impressed. Got to open it back up, see, what's, uh, see if that paper mache can work into your workflow. Exactly. For oh, and me, uh, speaking oh, no, of, oh, so one more. Yes, so I also please. released three videos last week. The lounge, the polycarbonate cabinet, and also... The Weed Whacker Golf Club. Which, which oh, one's doing yeah. best? <laughs> which one's got the best trajectory? Uh, well, I'll let you guys guess. Weed Whacker. No, that's the worst. Oh, dang it. But it's also, yeah, but I released it. It was like the third video I released that week. So I think it might have been. And People I were burnt it out? Down. Right. It was a little. Over you waited? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. I will say the Weed Whacker was about the dumbest but fun video I've <laughs> well, seen in a minute. Like It was like... a good video. <laughs> Like, you know, if you weren't even talking about within our segment, if you just said, here are three YouTube videos, which one do you think? That one, like, sounds the most viral-ish. 
Yeah, it's got the potential for it for sure. I think it's it's going to be something that if I re-edit it on Instagram, will go viral. Like it's a, mm-hmm. it's an easy Instagram video. I think it's a tougher thumbnail to show, right? Because yeah, it's you want to show the action, action shot. Yeah, and but you also need to show what it looks like. But showing it in action, you can't really see what it is at thumbnail scale. So it's a hard thing to to, to scale to a thumbnail. But I might rejigger the thumbnail a little bit and, and try some other things but yeah it's so funny that it's a it is a ridiculous project but it also works really really well yeah i was gonna ask was anybody driving or walking by while you were doing all your test shots cutting down all the weeds yeah well so i cut like a pretty big area in yeah. in two minutes because it cuts on the backswing which is nice, and it's less than two pounds, so it's really lightweight. And it, I had a bunch of idiots sort of say, oh, just buy a grass snake. One, a grass snake is like 20 bucks, and a grass snake is made out of really crappy steel and has a heavy wood handle. So it's way heavier, way more fatigue, and a lot of them don't cut on the backswing. It also makes for a really terrible video. I went and bought a grass snake. <laughs> right, <laughs> and it's also it's like... That could be good. Oh, even you know, for this one, I got the golf club for a dollar. It's an old circular saw blade. I bought two bolts, so I'm talking like two dollars of materials at the most. You know, for something that's uh, carbon fiber, high grade steel, and you're, there's there's no way you can manufacture something like that. So it's a weird. It is really silly. It is really stupid, but it also is like. Uh, <laughs> incredibly value oriented in a in a strange way to to make something out of carbon fiber and like good steel for nothing because it's like effective upcycling strangely uh what's the word dang it i lost it i was gonna say practical like strangely practical to me it seems like something that you'd see in a movie that like in i don't know honey i shrunk the kids like that dad that's an inventor would have that and that's what he cuts the lawn with or something And, and gopher eradicator yeah. 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 Some like weird scientist, like, oh, here it is. And yeah, you got to come up with a weird name and then tack 2000 on the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got yourself something going here, baby. Yeah, exactly. Why don't we quickly hear from a sponsor? Thank you, Storyblocks, for supporting this episode of the Modern Maker podcast. Storyblocks video is a great service for when you're in need of a quick video clip for B-roll, After Effects templates, or motion backgrounds for your videos. Somewhere you might have seen these types of assets in my videos, and you may be aware or unaware of it, is motion text graphics. For example, the overlays where it says click to subscribe, that sort of thing. Now, I've made these graphics on my own before. I used to do that when I first started. And in all honesty, it took me hours, and they kind of, well, let's just say that they didn't look great. So by joining Storyblocks, you'll have access to studio quality clips, templates, motion backgrounds, and more at a fraction of the cost. You can download as much as you want from their member library and get exclusive discounts to millions of additional marketplace clips. New clips are added regularly, so there's always something fresh to download. And everything's royalty-free, so you can use it for commercial and personal projects such as YouTube videos. So head over to storyblocks.com modernmaker to get started today. Again, that's storyblocks.com slash modernmaker, or just click the link in the description. All right. Thanks, Storyblocks. I'll be quick since I know we've already gone very long on the what we're working on, and I don't have that much to report, but I finished off the last two projects that I needed to finish off, 
So awesome. now I'm just strictly in editing mode. So those were the the updated Bad Larry that I did with Sean Boyd, which came out really cool. I got it all put together finally. So I'm really excited for people to get to see that. It's a different kind of bass than I've ever done before. So cool. should be Different in what way? Is it the, the geometry of everything is different? Yeah. So if you remember the record cabinet that I made that was like the failure one where I tried making those kind of like tall Y-shaped, I don't know if you remember that bass. I, I don't remember the bass, but I remember the case. Okay. <laughs> there you go. So go back and look at that video and I look will. at that bass. It's kind of that style, but a lot lower and okay. in like a cross form. So instead of being like two identical legs front and back, it's just one leg that runs the whole length and then a shorter version that runs the width that forms like a, like a cross basically. Very Japanese style. That's right. It's a, it's a four eyes Japanese fusion. Yeah. But yeah, so it, it'll be a, a different look than what I've done before. And then used some new techniques also just because things that I don't put into my workflow that Sean has in his workflow. So he kind of showed me the way he does things. I showed him the way that I do things. And there's definitely a few things that I will adopt that I, I think are good improvements over what I was already doing. Then I also put together the whole projector bench ottoman chaise thing that I talked about the past couple episodes. Kind of did a little pivot while I was working on that. I had planned to do these, a bunch of like curve cuts to make the boxes look like more one cohesive unit when they're put together. But going into it, I had paid a lot of attention to the grain of the sides and the front, basically all of the exposed faces of the bench when it's put together as three. And I just couldn't bring myself to cut it. Like once I had it, like it, it all looked like one thing when it came together. So I was like, I'm yeah. just going to leave it. So I, I kind of abandoned paths on that. I did do the upholstery like we talked about last week and I ended up doing exactly what Ben was talking about. Didn't sew anything, just did the whole like, I got high density foam, got some outdoor fabric, quarter inch pieces of plywood, all cut to size. And then just did kind of like the wrapping a present and stapling it on the underside kind of yep. technique. Still, I'm, like, I'm a bad present wrapper also, so, <laughs> and I had never done it before, so I actually had my mom come over to the shop, and, and she helped me with it and kind of showed me how to do one of them and then let me go at it a little bit and came out pretty good. Yeah, that way you would get, like, the right fold so it gives you a good edge or whatever. Yeah, she was showing me, like, how to get, like, a nice, like, so, like, it's, like, a 45-degree going up and, like, making sure that they were on the side. So if you look at it from the front, you don't see any folds, but then if you take them apart, you can start seeing the folds. Basically, they're kind of hidden when the whole thing is together. Right on. And you used outdoor fabric? Yeah, I used an outdoor fabric. I just went to Joann's and found everything. And like, I just happened to find this one that I liked that was 40% off. So I was like, all right, this is the one. Got, I don't know, two and a half yards of it or whatever. Nice. I've got that a question funny. for you. Yeah. So you were mentioning the the updated Bad Larry's. Yes. And those have, it's basically a trapezoidal shaped cabinet, yep. which lended itself to a conversation we were having a couple weeks ago. That was about the ratchet strap clamps. Oh, yeah. The kinds that are basically like a ratchet strap, and then it's got those four plastic connectors at 90 degrees to help guide everything. Yes. How many people reached out to you and said that was a good idea and you need to make them? Oh, I did get a lot of messages from people about like, oh, here's like an updated version or whatever. Because I got a lot of people reaching out to me saying it was a good idea. And, I, and every yeah. time someone messaged me, I was like, wait a minute, that was something Chris was going to do, not me. He's the one that got a 3D printer. No, Mike, you're doing it now. I'm going to send you my 3D printer. I'll 3D oh, print great. you a 3D printer. Great. Okay, so how's the 3D printing uh, I haven't gotten going? it yet. You haven't like, gotten it yet. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's just we've, our communication's been kind of slow, but like we've, 
agreed to a deal. And then I think I had mentioned on here, or maybe we were talking about this offline, but it's going to be from Matter Hackers, which is actually pretty close. They're probably like 45 minutes away from my house. So I think yep. they're actually going to come here, like maybe send a couple people and kind of get me up to speed and make something. And Shout out also, to Rhonda from Matter Hackers. Yeah, Rhonda. She's cool, man. When yeah, she yeah, came she's to our... Um, our little hangout we had when we were doing the Rockler retreat weekend thing, it yep. made it feel like it was like a mini convention. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool that like somebody <laughs> like from the industry is paying attention to it enough to show up and, and do some networking at it. Well, yeah. A lot of times we work with brands. They kind of pretend they know your stuff. Uh, they're, like, they're like, oh, I really like that project insert last project that you published here yeah in <laughs> yeah. all caps like uh, either most popular it. either like your most viewed video yeah. or the most recent video yeah. one or the other yeah we really like your stuff chris salamone one no they <laughs> they actually pay attention to the the community and they're great that's that's whose printers i'm using right now and you said they've been doing really well right they've been performing really well yes the i have two of them and they're the pulse uh d232s i think I'm pretty okay. sure that's what I'm getting to. Yeah. They are – so the nylon is awesome because it's incredibly strong. And it has a kind of – I like the look to it too. I think a lot of people are so used to PLA that they, they're like, oh, this looks different. It looks terrible. Uh, but I think the nylon looks really cool. It has this kind of like sh- like matte but woven kind of finish to it that, uh, that I actually think you could do really cool components with. The, the nylon though is – it's a lot of prep work to really get it to stick well to the bed. And if it doesn't stick perfectly, then it starts to pull up a little bit of a 16th of an inch and then your bottom surface is warped. Mm. So it's, it comes out when it comes out perfectly, it's amazing, but I'm probably batting about 50, 50, you know, when, uh, whether or not they're sticking and that's even, you know, wiping down the, the print bed with alcohol and then you know applying uh like a layer of of a thin glue you actually use like a glue yeah. stick to to get to really stick but the pla which is the more conventional material that isn't quite as strong which is perfectly fine if you're using it to make a prototype for casting or just to check a fit that i've been like you know 90% of the time it's coming out perfectly so nice i would say when you're doing when you are printing use pla to work through the design and then only print nylon when you're when you're absolutely ready yeah, you know what was cool? So when yeah, I was yeah. talking to her and we were kind of going over like what would be the best fit, I basically just pleaded my ignorance and said like, look, I know nothing about this world. You're an expert in there. So I will, you know the kind of stuff I do. I will trust your expertise with this. And so she said she thinks these would be a good thing for me to start with. And what else is cool is like I was saying, since they are local, is if I ever find myself in a situation where I want to do something that you know my machine can't do for whatever reason, I could either just like send them the file and have them print it, or I could just take a day and go over there and do it. And it'd be cool to have like a bunch of professionals that can like help me do it. So I do it the right way too. Yeah. So whenever the matter hackers team comes down to teach you how to 3d print, that needs to be your project is strap clamp connectors. (laughs) Let's make, or the making a product corner pieces. Yeah, man, you should, it would be really fun. Yeah. Now I should say I have the Bessie strap clamps, which work pretty well and they have, corner connectors that have a sort of a pivot. So I don't know what the angled range is, but they can probably go from like, you know, a fairly obtuse angle, like say 120 degrees down to like 60 degrees or something like that. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well then here's my suggestion. 
find the cheapest ratchet strap you can. Like go to Harbor Freight where they got the four packs of ratchet straps for Make like three bucks. Make something to improve that. Make something to fit that. Exactly. Gotcha. That way, That way you're bringing a good value add. The quality of the Bessie to the masses. Yeah, exactly. Because the ratchet strap's a ratchet strap. Like, it's hard to make one of those not, you know, not yeah. function the same as all the others. Here's how I think what would be really functional. The thing I don't like about the ratchet strap clamps is the setup. Because you kind of got to get them all in position and then slowly tighten it. So I actually think it should be two stages. No. Sorry. <laughs> you should have one where it's, like, adjustable, but it has, like, elastic to it. So you kind yeah. of set it to the rough thing, and that way it'll be easier to set that first one just to kind of hold all the pieces in place. And then once that's set, then you can use a second one to kind of actually tighten it down to really clamp it. Yeah. But I if you had say- one where it's just like a loop, so it had just like, you know, eight inches of, of elastic to it, and then otherwise was like an adjustable, just a basic belt with the, mm-hmm. the corner things on, you kind of lock it in. So it's just a little bit, the, the circumference is a little bit smaller than whatever you're putting it around. That way you use the stretch to kind of stretch it over, sucks it all in immediately, and you don't have to like hold the strap at the right height yeah. and then sort of crank it till it's tight. Yeah, I was going to say, that's actually the the issue that I have most frequently when I'm using them is them sliding down. So I'm usually doing it like if you just picture a box, flip it on its back and I'm strapping it up that way, right? And so those little corner blocks are perfect. Like they'll apply the pressure right where I need to it. They have enough tolerance to do things that are not 90, but they want to just like slide down to the bottom or they come off of the corner. So it's really just like if there was something that keeps those in place while you're sort of positioning it, what I end up usually doing is just putting it all the way down to the bottom and tightening it to like, you know, it's tight enough to hold, but not tight enough that it's like really clamping. And then I kind of like slide it into position, which is usually fine. Like, you know, when you're working with plywood, you want to be a little bit careful that you don't like scratch through the corner, you know, through the veneer of right. the corner. But yeah, that's actually the problem that I have more so than just like getting pressure onto it. It's just yeah. keeping things in position while you're doing it. Yeah. That seems like a tough one. Yeah. It's it's always annoying when somebody designs something as if you have three hands. Yeah. You do need <laughs> a, or as if you have an assistant. Yeah. But I should say with all of that talk, when we glued up that trapezoidal box, we just used the tape method. Yeah. <laughs> which is it. yeah <laughs> which works fine it's funny like and that is something you will get comments about it's like all you used was glue and tape to clamp that together and so like, yeah and it's, it's amazingly strong yeah or you know actually you know what would be i think if you did that kind of elastic band method mm-hmm. but then you make it so you could actually just put the band on by itself with none of the corner things and then you add the just corner like ones stretch them in right and then yeah, you just like it has pull enough it just gears. around that to, to kind of really shape it. Yeah. Let's think or, of it. Or here's another idea. Maybe the corner clamps have something, some sort of like hook to where they have like a, basically a relief from an edge. Yeah. So like it basically yep. like flops over and then it's down like six inches from the edge. Is that what you guys are talking about? Or uh, did I just... You may have to explain that one to me again. You, you're yeah. thinking of it almost like a speed square, Mike. So it can hold all almost. the edges that too. So it, it not only is it holding the perimeter geometry in the right place it's lining up the edges of the pieces as well oh yeah. i see what you're saying exactly. yeah i i very rarely have a strap clamp on the edge of something like mm-hmm. it's usually you know if i use three of them on a box one's in the middle one's four inches in from put it the in edge, the middle and, and give it that hourglass figure that's right the, yeah squeeze exactly. her in yeah no, that's exactly sh- what i mean chris so imagine you've got those those strap clamps 
and it's got a little hook that goes. Right. So if you've got a box on what is the face of the box, mm-hmm. you know, that's facing up, right? It's yes. sitting on its back. There's a little hook that goes over that face. And then there's some way of adjusting it, you know, between oh, two see. inches so you, and six yes. inches down. So rather than having to be flush, it can go. I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't then, know. like if it was going to be on the back side, it could you could use the same thing as like a foot that holds it up off the table a certain distance. Yeah, it seems a little over engineered. I would just look for someone. I would just look for a third hand. There you go. <laughs> I'll, I'll call a plastic surgeon and see what we can get done. Exactly. All right. So what are we talking about this week? Well, we have a question from Maddie Mallon on Instagram, and it's about technology. So he says, what technology do you think might help you in the future? At what point do you think technology dilutes the skill of making or does it enable us to be more ambitious with our designs and ideas? I got the perfect answer. Go for it. Strap clamps with <laughs> hooks on them. <laughs> That's what it's going to be. Yeah, it, it, was, it was good timing to the question. Yeah, yeah big time. But here, no, here's what I would say, right? Like if you look at all the people that are interested in making, it's not like the newest technology in a lot of cases is the most widely accepted. If anything, I would say amongst the sort of broad array of people that have woodworking or metalworking experiences, the digital fabrication is often left to a sort of later step. So this kind of idea that it's easier, I think is a little bit untrue. I think it's actually more complicated, not easier, which is why it's less common, not to mention the cost to sort of uh, set up and acquire all the things is is more substantial. Mm. The The interesting thing to me is like, is how people think about technology. They always think of it as as new applications. They don't think of it as the technological creep that happens to, to every single tool that we use. I'm using a circular saw now that is totally different than a circular saw in the past. Right. So, you know, if... I still want to see like the straight up race between like a a stock Ford Focus now and like a Porsche from like the nineteen you know sixties. <laughs> oh, dude, a, right? A Focus would. Yeah, I remember reading something in like this was probably ten or fifteen years ago, but they were comparing like uh whatever year the Corvette would have come out, so like late fifties probably mid fifties. I don't know when Corvettes first came out, and they were comparing it to a modern day minivan. Right. In terms of performance specs, and like they were about equal, and this would have been a minivan from like 2003 or whenever I was reading this thing. So like a minivan from now would crush an original Corvette. Right. Wow. So there, there's performance creep on everything, not just the the applications that are most rare. Like mm-hmm. tools today are so much more awesome than tools in the past. But there are those milestone indicators, right? So for instance, like circular saws, brushless motors were yeah. something that unlo- like totally unlocked a battery-powered tool to being something that you could just kind of depend on for 90% of your cuts instead of just the the 40% of things that are convenient. That and like lithium-ion batteries, like changing from NICAD to lithium-ion and then having brushless motors just stepped up cordless tools to a whole nother realm. Yeah, I I think where people, like where the complaint starts to get vocalized, I don't know, mentioned is like when your hands come off of the tool. Okay. I think that's where people, I think that's where the conversation starts. For some reason, if your hands are on the tool, well, the, well, that's not completely true because probably the shaper origin would be the exception to that rule. But it, I don't know, it kind of feeds the same thing because you're just like guiding it. But it's Mm -hmm. like when people start considering 
I'm not saying that this is the case, but like the machine is doing the work or whatever. And actually, yeah. so like going back to the just idea of digital fabrication, in my mind, could be totally wrong about this. Yeah, it's not easier. And actually like where it starts to become advantageous is when you start to get into like the more mid-level production in terms of like the quantity of the amount that you're producing. So like, you know, when you start to, you need to produce 10 of something rather than one of something. I think that's where like you really start seeing the advantages, not considering things like, you know, just like carving numbers and that kind of stuff into something. I'm talking about like if you're making a piece of furniture. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like I was even thinking about the way that, so like the way that me and Sean made this space, right? Made a template out of MDF, used that to rough out the shape and then used a template bit on a router to cut out the shape and get everything right. And then we used like sleds and everything to, and, and we left it kind of chunky initially so that we could glue up other pieces and then made another template that was like the whole piece. So we put hmm. those pieces on and then template routed again. So it was kind of an involved process. And I was thinking like, oh yeah, like if you had like a big heavy duty CNC, you could like rough out the shape in a kind of blocky way, glue everything together and then put it back in the CNC and do a refining pass where it like cleaned up the shape. But again, like you're, to do just one of them, that might not really be quicker with all the setup time that's involved. But if you're doing multiples, then it becomes like, okay, I want to mass produce these things. Now it can be a lot quicker. I just wonder if these idiots that say this also look at like photographs and being like, oh, it's really easy to make an image of something when you don't have to draw it. Like, do they apply this <laughs> to like other types of, of technology as well? Every time they used a microwave, do they be like, oh, Real easy to use to, to heat up that macaroni and cheese. I assume that's what they're eating. Because <laughs> you don't have to make a campfire to, 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 yeah. to heat it up. But a photograph is not the same thing as a drawing. Right. Like, photography didn't negate freehand drawing. If anything, it sort of says it, it sort of says that the maybe the greatest value of freehand drawing is in abstraction, not at photorealism. Right. And Maybe the greatest advantage with digital fabrication isn't to make the exact same things that you can make with conventional tools. Maybe it's not doing dovetail connections because you could do something even more complicated or even more simple because it's perfectly precise. Right. Maybe it maybe it's in doing things that you would be really challenging. So I think the idea that I, I think the 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 simplistic nature of of the way people apply tools to outcome is thinking that this makes projects easier. No, no, no. A tool can make a task easier and then a project can evolve from the ability of making that task easier, but it doesn't make just broad concepts of making easier. Right. This this might be restating exactly what you just said, but to go back to the photo drawing analogy, if photography would have made, yeah, just photorealism not as impressive of a thing. It put the focus on how is it composed? What does it make you feel? What does it make you think about when you look at this image more than just like, oh wow, look how clear this is or whatever. And so for me, furniture is kind of the same thing. Like I, I get why people value handmade. I personally don't. Like the whole idea that somebody made this with their hands doesn't do anything for me in terms of like what I would be willing to pay for something. What I care about is like, what do I think about the outcome? What does it make me feel when I look at it? Like, that's what's important to me. Yeah. Like right. if, if I go to an ice cream place and it says hand churned ice cream and it's not good. I want good, a robot to churn my ice cream. Right. Like I, I don't care. 
I care I care what it tastes like and I right, care yeah. about the texture. Now, if they tell me the reason why we get this amazing texture that you're you're experiencing is because we hand turn it and by hand turning it, you can really do this and this and this that apply it. All right, you got me. But yeah. they're just the claiming to me, there's a lot of insecurity when people sort of critique a a a certain type of process uh, because they think it makes it easier. To me, that just makes them worry that their their place in the world is being dis, dis, diminished because they're not learning as fast as everyone else. Yeah, you know, it's like dipping dots. Just because it's <laughs> good technology cream. doesn't make it better, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I'm a I'm a dipping dots truther. I'm still saying maybe. The, just kidding. I've had them like one time, I think. But I, I still think like the the like I think most making television shows suck. But there, if if there was a show that I would really want to see, it would be sort of an analog versus digital competition show where it's not like people competing. It's more like technology sort of competing. So like every week, it's like a different design challenge, and you have a team of young, super three D savvy people using digital fabrication. And then like an old seasoned crew of like weathered makers with like every sort of analog tool in the book. And I think if you created the challenges cleverly, it would really showcase how, you know, the the different strengths. You can get this kind of like formal precision and just really kind of unconventional shapes and geometries with the digital fabrication. But it's also slow. Yeah. You, You know. You know, a, a, a team of guys with, uh, with you know, angle grinders and welders can make something big and strong really, really fast. So if it was who's going to make the catapult that shoots something the farthest, like quicker, I would bet my money on the, the analog guys. If it uh, had to make sort of something incredibly aerodynamic, oh, maybe that's an advantage to that. But maybe if it's something that has to be both aerodynamic and incredibly robust and big, that's where it would be kind of an even challenge uh, between these, you know, these two different technological groupings. So the the other thing too is that I've always felt that digital fabrication adds complexity because it's rare that I've made something just digitally fabbed by itself. And anytime you add a completely new tool set that has a sort of preparation stage that involves a computer, that's not easier. That's more complex. There's more things that can go wrong. There's more errors in the 3D printing. Uh, there's more realizations that you need more calibration of the CNC. I find that the CNC, it's rarely does it make a project faster. I can cut so much faster with my circular saw or even a handheld router than the the CNC can cut because I'm going to really push it right to the aggressiveness of the router or the saw because I'm feeling the resistance in my hand. So it definitely doesn't make things faster unless you're repeating tons and tons of pieces and you're letting the machine sort of operate independently while you know right. while you're while you're sleeping. But even in that case, a lot of these machines you have to monitor in real time. Like this this idea that you kind of set it and forget it. To to quote the the late right, great Ron Popiel. Yep. Is he dead? I don't know, but I just like we to may say, have just killed Ron. Let's, Popiel. let's just say the late great Ron Popiel. I'm let's sure. just say the great, <laughs> the alive late, or dead. He's a the great late, guy. He's up there in the the QVC heaven in the skies with Billy Mays. <laughs> wow, <laughs> good old Billy Mays. Infomercial heaven. Yeah, but I find that that's actually rare because these machines often have. If, if you leave your CNC <laughs> unattended and it sort of gets caught up, you come back, you could have ruined a whole piece of wood. Yeah. Uh, I think Jimmy was talking on the, the the Making It podcast about the sort of nervousness before he 
plugged in an expensive slab of walnut to the CNC, it's like, ooh, do I really trust my settings? So Right. Dude, I get anxiety, like, not bad, but every time before I just, like, hit carve, I'm, like, really, like, double-checking everything and triple-checking it and get a feeling like, this is going to mess up. Like, I have my hand hovering over the uh, emergency stop button for the first 15 seconds or so. Yeah. And then I'll kind of be like, okay, cool, it looks like it's going good. But, yeah, I don't feel that when I... <laughs> for most of the stuff if it's like especially even if it's a straightforward thing that i'm doing and i've done it before i still get that feeling mm -hmm. i don't get that feeling usually if i'm you know ripping a piece of plywood yeah what this whole conversation kind of made me think about was the idea of letting people just become familiar with the technology so much rather than the technology advancing any huge leap I think the huge leap in technology already happened. Once people made the first functional 3D printers that gave you good results and then got them to the masses, I think that was that technological leap. The next leap that needs to happen is 20 years of people being born and just this being normal. Mm -hmm. The way to where they're not talking about it the way we're talking about it, coming in with preconceived, this is how you build things and these are the tools that you use. I think it takes people just being born and growing up using them as if it was any other tool so that when it comes time that something needs to be 3D printed or something needs to be CNC'd, one, it doesn't slow them down. It's just kind of a part of their process and they kind of grow into making things, knowing when to use it and when not to use it and become that sort of hybrid woodworker to where people 60 years ago, 40 years ago, I don't know how long ago, how long ago it was. When the technological leap of, oh, wow, table saws, routers, mm -hmm. all these things are convenient enough, affordable enough, and work well enough that pretty much everyone kind of has access to them, or at least here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then it takes 20 years for the people to figure out when is it best to use a handsaw? When is it best to use a circular saw? When is it best to use a table saw versus, you know, more traditional tools? And then just letting the stigma of all of it wear down to where the actual most efficient like hybrid woodworking exists. You know, I think that's like what Mark Spagnuolo was trying to do with his book. Was right, saying, it's funny because, yeah. This that is how you get the best results by making it most convenient to you and also lowering the stigma to where people can't like hate on you for it anymore. Yeah, it's funny what you're talking about because yeah, hybrid woodworking, when people say now they're talking about like blending power tools and hand tools. Yeah. You're talking about it like just adding in digital fabrication stuff. And I think, I mean, that's how it's used best when it's just yeah. another tool. And I think that there's probably this tendency that when things are newer, it's the only tool. So you have people that are either in this camp or this camp, and now it's definitely blending. And I think tools, you know, like the X-Carve or the Shapeoko, these things that are, have a lot lower of a cost of entry so that it allows the hobbyist to actually get in there and start implementing these things into their workflow mm -hmm. like that's what's ushering that age in i think so and and i'm glad that you brought up the idea of incremental change because i think that's the biggest part of it is i think the leap has already happened just like getting the machines accessible to the average consumer i think that was the leap and now you just have to let incremental change to where machines gradually keep getting better to where the people that do have the naysayers that do still say we well, are well it's you know, it's slow or you don't always get good results or, you know, it's not as strong as it should be. You know, whatever people can complain about. I'd like to see you do it with your hands. That's the big one. I think. Yeah. Just <laughs> At least let, on YouTube. <laughs> let time and that incremental change, like slowly just make it to where it's undeniable, to where the people that are complaining now, 
they either kind of get convinced or they kind of just fall by the wayside. And those are the people that are still using only hand tools. Yeah, it's, it's like people talking about music and like how many strings are on a typical guitar? Six. Six. Right. So they act as if like that is like way more complex and true than like some music producer that has like, you know, a mile of boards in front of them that's pulling yeah. from a million live samples and the entire recorded history of music and putting yep. together stuff. Oh, wait, that's easy. Yeah. Right. No, it's just different. It's just a different yeah. skill set, yeah. But it was crazy though. I'm like, do you remember, like in the like late '90s, early 2000s, when people started like talking about how crazy of an idea sampling was? They're like, you've got people making music out of other people's music. It's right. insanity. Yeah. But now well, the majority of pop music is a sample, like incorporates a sample of something. I don't remember what it was, but when we were all hanging out, Mike, you sh- you pulled up a video on YouTube where it was this guy that basically like him and his friends would all do, I don't know, they would make like mixes of things or, you know, using, they had all of a sample that they started with and then each of them made like their own song using that sample. Oh yeah. You showed us that video. Yeah. And I remember the first, like you could tell the way that he edited it, he kind of did it in like order of complexity without telling you that initially. Cause I remember watching the first one and being like, okay, if you showed me how to use this software for two hours, I could make what they just made and then like by the time we got to the second and third one it was like oh crap like this is crazy all of the things like they've turned it into something totally new and you can like really see the artistry in it and if you all call it if, if you just say it's just one thing it's not like there's a very simplistic not that interesting version that people can do with it. And then there's insane things that people can do with it. Yeah. Right. I mean, I could 3D print a doorknob or I could 3D print whatever the heck Ben is doing with these a like bust weird of Julius Caesar. <laughs> right. It's going to be Mike's new thing. But there's levels to everything, right? And That's so right. you got to, you definitely got to keep that into, uh, keep that in perspective. And, and, and the, other, the last thing is that, People love to throw around these terms like, oh, it's a disruptive technology. And they act like as in if, a good way or a bad way? I think in both. But they act as if like old things become extinct, right? Like, right. There'll always be a place for a hand plane. Right. So like, but think about, and, and there's, there's this woe is me attitude that like, oh, now we're only going to get the mass produced cheap stuff and the, the right. well made hand produced stuff is going away. And that was only the stuff we had when I was a kid. That is completely untrue. Let's take donuts and Twinkies, for example, right? Yes. (laughs) The mass-produced ones of like Twinkie, Hostess, and those, and our Debbie's, you know, pies or whatever, those were all... Right. Those businesses were all in trouble (laughs) and needed to be saved. The mass-produced ones were failing. Meanwhile, if you go to any like downtown kind of hipster area, like you'll see a ton of like artisan donut shops are like popping up everywhere. Now, those probably right. won't be around forever. Maybe cupcakes will come back and something else. Come but on, sprinkles. I got a lot of sprinkle stock. If anything, <laughs> if anything, customers have become more discerning. And the more efficient we get at making something, the more people then, and that becomes prevalent, the more people appreciate the nuances of the handmade thing, and then it becomes a more valuable thing. Yes, you can go to the grocery store and get, you know, a 12 pack of donuts for like three or $4, or you can go to an artisan shop and buy one donut for probably like three or $4. Mm-hmm. You, right. know, you know what businesses seem to be doing better right now? The, the artisan shops, even the, because they're not trying to compete just on the sheer, you know, mass production of, of sugary stuff. That's, that's plentiful. 
So people was going, hey, if I am going to have a donut, I want a really good one. Right. So I, I think the same thing with the the handmade stuff versus the CNC stuff. If if you're good at showing and communicating how your handmade approaches or your antiquated uh, technological approaches are adding subtle values, then you're going to be just fine. You're future proof. But if you're not, if you can't really distinguish or articulate or demonstrate why it's better other than your own archaic sensibilities and your fear of the future, then uh, you're going to be part of the evolutionary process of getting rid of the weakness. Natural Oof. selection. Booyah. Oof. Dark note to, to jump into uh, what, what you're obsessed with. What we are obsessed with. with. <laughs> it, it's, I guess, actually, I'll it, start off since I've got a dark It's why pick. learning is important. Even if it's learning more hand-tool things, it's like why you should always try to get better at things. Big time. I agree with you. Yeah. But the, the cool thing, though, is you were talking about this idea of automation or like mass producing items is what's going to kill the people that are designing and building things independently. But I, but what you're saying, I agree with wholeheartedly. It's like that's what's enabling people who have CNC's, 3D printers and their own individual workshops to be able to mass produce on a local level, on a small scale to where they're able to build at volume enough to support themselves, but have the ability to change up their designs frequently enough that they always have things that are cooler than West Elm Mm -hmm. or always have things that are a little bit more on the edge than like design within reach or something like that. Or at least different. Yeah. It gives you, you if you say better is subjective, but at least they're different. If if your interest is being able to pivot and always come up with new things, then that's what gives you the ability to do it, but still build that scale so that you can be priced not as well as someone that's manufacturing and importing, but at least be competitive to the people that are interested in something unique. There you go. That's a nice. positive note to end it on. All right. So now what what dark thing are you oh. obsessed with? All right, here we go. So I got another Netflix pick. And first, let me say Netflix. One of my problems with with Netflix is I feel like they have a bad recommendation system. Like mm. they'll always recommend me like just 20 different things and they'll just put it into 50 different categories. Right. Like it'll be the exact, <laughs> oh, you should watch Abstract because you watched some other, you know, grand, whatever that house thing was. Or because you watched uh, Toy Story 3. Like yeah. it, it almost doesn't matter. It just wants to like recommend these few things, but there are good things on there that it doesn't recommend to you. So I watched, I'm not a huge horror movie guy, but I do like good movies. And this one happens to be a horror movie. It was called train to Busan. Hmm. It's a Korean movie, like a, a basically a zombie movie, but, um, Oh, I heard about that. I heard it's really good. Yeah. It was, it, it gets going like pretty quick and doesn't really let up. So it's, <laughs> It's just kind of like an intense, I don't know, hour and 40 minutes or however long it was. And it, it kind of, it, it falls into that. Like last week I was talking about, Mike, how I knew your video was good because Dolores stumbled into the room and got hooked. Like she yeah. absolutely doesn't like those kind of movies. And she was working on something it, like on the laptop or whatever in bed while I was watching it. And I had my headphones on and like I kept looking over and like even seeing her watching it without the sound. I was like, do you want to just watch it? And she's like, no, no, no. And then like I'd look over again and she's watching again. So it's definitely worth watching. Nice. Like my favorite of those kind of movies is probably 28 Days Later. That's a good one. Yeah. And so this one is maybe not quite as like, doesn't quite have like the beauty that 28 Days Later has, but it's very intense. And if that's in the you know ballpark of things you like, I think you'll like this one. Yeah, 28, Days, to Busan. 28 Days Later is the best zombie movie I've ever seen. Certified. Have you ever seen it, Mike? 
Yeah, I've I've seen it a couple times. I saw it once when I was a kid, and it scared the crap out of me. And I didn't watch it again until I was a f- like a full grown cool. adult. <laughs> then I could appreciate <laughs> it. Grown ass man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who's you know next? what movie? I, the other one that the one when you said Twenty Eight Days Later, the movie that it made me think of initially was what's the one called like however many days of night or something like that where they're oh, in yeah. Alaska and it's dark yeah. all the time. Josh that's a real cra- Yeah, that's a real crappy situation to be in. Yeah, how many days is that of night? But that's about vampires, not zombies. Yes, yeah. X number of days of night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, well, Ben, what are you obsessed with this week? I'm going to give you two. The first one is going to be relative to the or related to the topic that we discussed, and that's uh, Winston Moy uh, on Instagram under Winston Makes. If you are interested in getting into CNC fabrication, Winston is a is a great follow. He just really yep. gets into like the fine-tuned details of like different settings, different bits, and it's a great reference both to his Instagram and YouTube channel for CNCing. And yep. uh, so be sure to check him out. Uh, he's one of those people that really shows that there is a craft to digital fabrication. And because if you think about it too, I mean, how many different like, you know, a, a, a craftsperson will know exactly what tool and how to select for the job and how to do it. And people act as if like CNCs have like one option. If anything, you have like millions and millions of different combinations of of your your the speed that you're running the bit at, the type of bit, the plunge depth, uh, the way you're stepping it, what steps you're doing first, how you're locking it down, how you're getting into these intricate corners. So there's a lot of strategy and skill that goes into the setup to get uh, consistent and great results. So that's mm-hmm. my sort of uh, my topic uh, related one. For just in general enjoyment, it's going to be the Reply All podcast, which I've mentioned before. But I also want to give a particular shout out to a certain episode, and that's called The Founder. If you just ever wonder like what crime is actually like, listen to this episode. It is, it's about this guy that basically started as kind of like a, he wrote some software that open source, and then a bunch of other people made money off of it. He got very disillusioned because he wasn't making any money and everyone else was getting rich off of his sort of uh, uh, software. Mm-hmm. So that led him to a life of crime, basically. And he built oh, this no. like massive online pharmaceutical empire. And they said, you know what? I'm making millions of dollars doing this. I have to invest all this money. And you think at that point he'd try to go legit. But no, he doubled down and went like more criminal. And <laughs> this he, guy's just a bad decision. He, so he started like buying uh, meth from North Korea and <laughs> that's meth. Gold <laughs> from Af- like uh, black market gold from Africa. Hired his own team of mercenaries, and uh, yeah, it's a fantastic story about his whole rise and fall. Wait, hang on, hang on, really quickly. What? I, and I don't think there's a spoiler. I think there's just the question everyone's wondering. What was he doing with the meth and what was he doing with the gold? I mean, Bu- I, I'm buying and selling it. Smoking it and wearing it. Okay. Right. What do you do with black market gold? Where, where do you sell that? How do you clean that up? So there's you go to a place wherever there's a lot of gold mines and general uh-huh. chaos. And what happens is the people that work at the mines tend to siphon it off. And they have to sell it discreetly, so they sell it for less than its actual commercial value. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not that easy to go and buy it because these are also areas where they're incredibly dangerous. So there's the capital expense of hiring people that can actually make sure that your money doesn't get stolen and that the gold actually gets delivered. And that nice. off, gold is heavy, so you're often dealing with like trucks and logistics. So it's a lot of work to sort of buy and sell gold illegally. 
And then I have to imagine what you've got to remelt it and then make it into new bars so that yep. it's then kind of like that's the process of laundering gold yep. instead of money, I guess, huh? Yep. Gold river Melting tables, baby. Gold. Wow. <laughs> gold river tables. Easy enough. Yeah, that's how you smuggle it. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Mike, before you get into your pick, just for uh-huh. all the people that are yelling at their car stereos right now, 30 days of night. 30 days of Maybe. night. Nice. Well, 28, 30. It was close, yeah, right? It's right there. Yeah. For my obsession, I'm actually going to shout out your video, or at least your collabs, Chris, the ones that you did with Sam, DIY Huntress, and Alicia, Pneumatic Addict. Whenever they came out, they built a round coffee table with hairpin legs. And I'm not going to say it's uh, derivative at all, but it was just kind of like in the same theme of what I sort of did whenever I came out. And it was awesome to see the way they sort of took everything, or I guess you guys, I I include you in it too, Chris, took everything one step further. And they sort of did a relief cut pattern, but totally switched it up and did something I wouldn't do, but I think looks super awesome. And then they came back and did different ways of like staining and tinting the wood that I thought was super awesome. So if you haven't seen those, go to Chris's channel, watch that video, and then everything else kind of stems off from there, correct? Yeah. Yes. That's a good thank starting point. Thank you on behalf of them also. No problem. And hey, thank you for all the shout outs and all of it too. I appreciate it. So yeah, that is going to do it this week. Thank you for listening to the Modern Maker Podcast. If you've got topic suggestions or questions you want us to talk about, you can send us DMs on Instagram. Just reach out to us individually and let us know that you want us to talk about it on the show. I am at Modern Builds. Chris is at Four Eyes Furniture. And Ben is at Benjamin Ueda. Collectively, we're at Modern Maker Podcast. Don't forget, give us show reviews. We love a good five star. And we'll see you next week on the Modern Maker Podcast. Bye, everybody. Later. Bye.